Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heinz Mayonnaise. You may forget what happened three seasons ago on that show everyone's talking about, but you will never forget a delicious BLT made with unforgettably creamy Heinz mayonnaise. Slather it onto a mouthwatering turkey club, mix it into a luscious garlic aioli, or layer it on a thick cheddar cheeseburger, and because of the unforgettable creaminess, hours later, you'll be telling everyone with an earshot just how good it was. Try something new, try unforgettably creamy Heinz mayonnaise, and try the new Heinz mashups, mayo chup, Mayo Q, Mayo Must, and Crunch. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at Thringer.com and joining me in the studio, it's my perpetual running mate, Allison Herman. What's up, Allison? Great introduction. Thanks. I try. You know, um, today we're going to be talking a little bit about Veep and Barry. And later in the show, I have my conversation with the comedian David Cross about his new stand-up special, Oh Come On. But first, Allison and I are going to talk about non-thrones HBO television. Is this the subcategory? It exists. Yeah. People may not be aware of it, but it's around. Can I ask you a general question? I know that you and I are not reliable narrators in this conversation because we are firmly, not only are we inside the bubble, we are like teamsters making the bubble in this case. Yeah, we're puffing up the bubble. But it does feel like this, all shows going up against Game of Thrones are like footnotes right now, right? Like it's interesting that Barry, Veep, and Killing Eve and a couple of other things are kind of forced to deal with these scraps of pop culture left over after Daenerys blog number nine. Oh, absolutely. And I think you can also tell that the rest of television is kind of cleared out of the way. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, Mindhunter and Succession are coming back in August. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of stuff coming in June. <laughs> okay, <and I> Chris <laughs> Ryan's month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Chris Ryan's month and Allison's trial, I guess is what we can call it. But <laughs> Trial by combat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no, I definitely think you can tell that there was a tactical decision on a lot of schedulers' behalf yeah. that we're going to hold our big swings until a little later. Especially Netflix. It seems like there hasn't been like a a really marquee Netflix show in the last couple of weeks. Am I right? Dead to yeah, Me? Yeah, Dead to Me is the biggest one, but Dead to Me is kind of Thrones counter-programming. Yeah. It's very low-key, realistic-ish, I guess. Yeah. But, you know. Newport it's- Beach real estate porn. and A little bit of Desperate Housewives in there. Sure. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because, I mean, obviously you've been doing the recapables with Kate and doing a great job with Killing Eve this season, but I, I literally don't have time to talk about it, much less keep up with it. Like, I think I'm one episode behind on Eve. But for something that was so well regarded last year, do you feel like it might have been a little bit of a mistake to put it at this exact time of year this year? I mean, it definitely is effective counterprogramming, I think. And I do think simulcasting it on AMC makes a difference. I also just last year, the same thing happened where when it was airing live, there was very little buzz about it. And then it hit on Hulu and all of a sudden it became a thing. So I could also see AMC networks just kind of thinking to themselves, it doesn't necessarily matter when we air this because so much of the audience, according to them, comes in iTunes sales and streaming sure. and other non-traditional ways in. Yeah, it's interesting because like we when we had Brian Raftery on the pod a couple of weeks ago and Sean and I were talking to him about his book, uh, Best Movie Year Ever, you know, there's a bunch of those movies that were made with an eye towards the home entertainment market, like figuring, okay, we'll do X amount of business in the theater, but maybe in the future we'll be able to recoup some of our costs with like 
a healthy DVD sales. And obviously movies like Office Space like kind of live off of that or lived off lived off that. I kind of feel like that's almost happening with TV now a little bit more where it's like, it, it, obviously we don't really talk about ratings nearly as much as we did 15, 10 years ago. But for so- something like what you're saying with Killing Eve where they're like, yeah, we're going up against the biggest pop culture phenomenon of the decade. So obviously there's going to be a little less attention paid on it. But they are counting on like, when you're done Thrones, binge Eve, right? Yeah, we'll be right here. I also think Killing Eve this season, this is such a weird thing to say about an espionage thriller because obviously there is a ton of plot, but I do think it is a show that you go to for the vibe and to spend time with these people and people aren't exactly distraught that they're missing out on the very latest developments in this cat and mouse game. It's just like, okay, whenever I want, I can go hang out with my best friends, Sandra O and Jodie Comer, and that's just waiting for me whenever. Whereas with Thrones, there's the urgency of you need to watch it right now. One of the things that I've always sort of been fascinated, I'd love to go back through the years and kind of look at this. I know the HBO's numbers are a little bit different, but obviously lead-ins are very important on television, and Game of Thrones functions as maybe the best lead-in you could possibly have, although this year with the extended episodes... I do wonder whether that's affecting whether or not people have the emotional and mental fortitude to go into an episode of Barry right after it. Yeah, I don't know if those are the best juxtaposition. It's not like, oh, I'm really down after watching half the people I know die. Yeah. I really should just... Let's watch Hater kill people and then watch Jonah Ryan uh, lobby against vaccines. half of America with chicken pox. Let's talk a little bit about Barry. The, The tenuous but somewhat their connection that I'd like to make between that and Thrones is this idea of the narrative accordion, like compression and expansion of like how much time is passing, what's going to be happening in these episodes. And I thought Barry really expertly tackled what to do with your second season because it really did feel like of a piece of the first season, a lot of the tensions and a lot of the questions from the first season are still being sort of teased out in this season. But I do feel like it it still has enough to surprise you on a week-to-week basis to keep it it doesn't feel rote. It doesn't feel like they're just kind of playing greatest hits. Totally. I actually wrote about this at the beginning yeah. of the season, but just in terms of the big picture questions that someone like me has going in, in terms of how does the season justify itself, I think thematically it was an incredibly smart evolution of the question, is Barry a good or bad person? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. And then it realizes that there's a whole extra question to be asked after that, which is how long is it going to take for him to admit to himself that he's a bad person? Right. right. And then I think the thing that I underestimated, which is just, you know, you need that conceptual underlying question to drive the show. But then on top of that, it's also just incredibly well-made and super funny. Yeah. And a lot of that is comes out of them knowing exactly what they're doing at a conceptual level. So uh-huh. the example I would give is they did this amazing bottle episode. I believe it's Ronnie slash Ronnie Lily. slash Lily, yeah. That's so what I wanted to talk good. about. Yeah. Weirdly, the connection with Thrones is not even that tenuous because a lot of Twitter jokesters, myself included, pointed out after the long night, which <laughs> I know you don't agree with this, but I thought was very disappointing, yeah. was kind of like, oh, actually, the best action sequence that you can see on HBO was Barry and not Thrones. But it's an action sequence where the joke is totally rooted in Barry's character. So, for example, it's hilarious when he walks in in the ski mask to this dude with a Taekwondo medal and is like, you know, my boss really wants me to kill you, but I'm actually going to help you escape to Chicago. And as a viewer, it's hilarious because, of course, that's not going to happen. You know it's not going to happen. It's so stupid and futile that Barry would think it's going to happen. But it's that dramatic irony of this character deluding himself into thinking he has a way out when he obviously doesn't. 
I'm glad you brought up Ronnie and Lily because it's my favorite episode of TV this year. Yeah, that's and, entirely fair. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I would call it Tarantino-esque, but usually what people mean when they say that is it's got tough guys, vi- violent characters who are making pop and culture-infused meta-commentary about themselves or a sense of humor about themselves. And obviously, like, Tarantino is capable of a lot more. It's like the narrative, you know, formal structural stuff that he does. But that's usually what people mean when they say Tarantino-esque. But that episode of Barry felt Tarantino-esque in that it was a lot like that, the Marcellus Butch part of Pulp Fiction, where... It basically feels like an expert storyteller telling you a story at a party and you're just completely gripped and have no idea what's going to happen next, but not in like a twisty-turny way, more like I'm completely at your mercy as to where you want to take this. And television can feel really rote. Like you can have like these three sets and you just keep returning to them over and over again because that's the economical way to make TV is to like have a place where you're setting a show and kind of cycle through these these environments. I didn't know where they were going to go that night. I didn't know, like, it was in that guy's house for a while. I didn't know how long they were going to fight for. I thought, I'm going to fight for, like, 30 minutes. And then it kind of, like, wanders throughout that neighborhood, and it goes to the supermarket. It was just such an amazing adventure. And it's super funny because the supermarket scene is actually the profile of Bill Hader that ran in The New Yorker. In yeah, the Tad Frank piece, right? Yeah. yeah, they report from the shooting of that scene, <laughs> and I remember reading it and thinking, oh, no, I don't really want the plot details of the new season to be yeah, spoiled for me yeah, in yeah. advance. And I basically forgot about it, and then they're in the supermarket, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, that's that scene. Yeah. And it's so in- incredible when you read the interviews that Hater did into, in terms of how they came up with it. And they literally hit on this concept because their stunt coordinator was just like, hey, if you ever need her, I just know this little girl who's <laughs> insanely good at yeah. this because her parents are both stunt coordinators and she's really schooled. And they just kind of were spitballing in the writer's rooms about things that Barry could do and people he could kill. And then eventually they were like, oh, yeah, we can we can use this kid. Yeah. And it's just one of those happy accidents of television production that you hear about where they didn't have it in their minds ahead of time, but it just turned into this total series highlight. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting in that the highlight of Barry's last season for me and, you know, who knows, we could still see some amazing stuff in the remaining two episodes. But it was that seventh episode where Barry's struggle for his soul comes to a head along with the acting piece of it. Yeah. And it's a very decisive, like, storytelling thing that— meaningfully changes how you view Barry's character. And I thought this was interesting in that not necessarily a whole lot happens from a plot point of view Mm -hmm. or even just, like, our understanding of Barry and Fuchs is pretty much where it was when we started, except we give a little more of an idea of, like, just how bad Fuchs is Mm -hmm. and how unsalvageable that relationship is. And where in his life he's kind of come in, yeah. 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 And I thought it was interesting in that, you know, the episode doesn't necessarily shift that. It just takes this pre existing dynamic and comes up with this incredibly vivid and hilarious way to illustrate it. Yeah. I love how they've basically, Barry is trying to sort of atone for the things that he's done by like playing the same game, but playing with one hand tied behind his back. It's like he's not going to fight with the. With the Chechnins, but he's going to train them, you know, or the, the you know, he's not going to fight with Noho Hanks guys, but he's going to train them. And when he goes to go assassinate the Taekwondo guy, he's like, but I've come up with this new plan for you where we can just take you to Chicago. Yeah, the mental gymnastics are truly impressive. Yeah, but it, it, that really does fit with a guy who's like, I'm trying to make up for these incredibly, you know, like these sins that I've committed by like these small little 
adjustments rather than like a wholesale life change. Yeah, and that one big refusal to actually approach self-knowledge comes, basically you end up with all these just blatant lies that he's telling himself, like the idea that Gene Cousinow is going to accept him when mm-hmm. he's when he's told him this like one relatively minor part of his bigger war story yes. and Gene cannot let go of it. And rather than internalizing that because Barry is in this bigger self-deception, he's like, oh, no, no, no. Like Gene understands me because he needs to convince himself that he is a life raft who is not Fuchs. I could literally listen to Winkler say, we shouldn't do that because you killed a man and got away with it <laughs> over and over again. Also, wonderful story that apparently Henry Winkler read the famous James Ponawazic New York Times, I don't know if this should have a second season, and like went to Bill Hader and Alec Berg and was like, guys, what are we doing? Should we be doing this? <laughs> and they were like, calm down. Hader talked about that with Bill where he was like, it's really like a weird feeling when people are coming up to you and be like, man, Barry, don't need any more of that. You nailed it. He's just like, <laughs> uh, thanks, like, I guess. But, you know, I think that they... You know, one of the things that's sort of been driving everybody slightly out of their minds with Thrones this year is this feeling like we're weirdly being robbed of something here because of the speed at which the plot is moving. I'm assuming that Hater had some idea that three was going to come uh, too, so at, that he was going to get to do a third season. And I think that they're pacing it appropriately. I think that they're exploring the world, but they're not like getting out ahead of their skis at all. Oh, I totally agree. And I'm just so excited to see more and to yeah. see what's going to happen in this world. And I do think like two to three is a easier conceptual leap for a lot of people, including myself, to make than one to two. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Veep, which comes to a series finale on Sunday and has been, man, I don't even know how to describe. First of all, like it is deep, it is like the most pleasurable 30 minutes of my life every week, probably. Like, to, Oh, wow. Just to get the like, now I'm going into this weird world where, like, it's just, like, pure jokes for 30 minutes like this. And I think that you could make the argument that this season of Veep is not one of the best seasons of Veep. In the classical idea of what this show is capable of being. But it is definitely, like, they are, like, emptying all of the, like, joke barrels. Like I mean, speaking of Thronesian <laughs> plot acceleration, yes. I did not realize until literally yesterday that this final season of Veep is going to be just seven episodes. Yeah. Not eight, not ten, seven. Yeah. So I was just totally like, oh my, I thought we were just heading into the final well, stretch that was and it like, turns I out... I think ordinarily, we probably would have had like a week or two of like what Veep has meant in tribute to Julie. I mean, we probably will in some capacity, I and mean, you're writing about it next week, but they've kind of like, not flown under the radar, but I think that they have been kind of just quietly going about this last season, and next thing you know, oh my gosh, it's going off the air after the next Sunday. Totally. And in terms of how it measures up to past incarnations of Veep, I've been revisiting older seasons. Yes, yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask finale. a little bit about, yeah. Well, I'm not even sure if I would characterize it totally in terms of like quality, whether this is better or worse, although I can probably be upfront and say I prefer the earlier incarnation of the show, but it is a different incarnation. It has literally changed how it works on an almost molecular level. It's just a totally different series in a really interesting way. I so mean, can you tell me a little bit about how without stealing from your own piece, I guess? Oh, well, basically I'm brainstorming. <laughs> okay, so good. Just, I'm just spitballing out in front of a microphone. But I mean, so obviously the first four seasons were under Armando Yanucci and the last three have been under David Mandel. I think... 
you know, the characterization of Selena is definitely different. I think in earlier seasons, you can she's a little more, um, you can tell that she is personally principled and then she's slowly been worn down. But I think you could argue that's more of a series-long arc is like she starts as a better person and ends as like a total shell. Yeah. I just think what happens, and I don't even know if you could just, I don't even know if you could characterize this as like American comedy versus British comedy, but it gets broader and bigger and faster. Mm-hmm. And I think the Unucci era in the show would have these borderline pretty serious workplace office yeah, plot lines absolutely. that were just kind of punctuated occasionally by these incredibly lewd one-liners. But they would, you know, things were given more space to breathe. And I actually think the biggest, like, big picture dynamic on the show that's changed a lot is Veep used to be a show about powerlessness and indignity and futility and being marginalized within this bigger you know, system, and you just inflate these totally picky mistakes. Like, the, yeah. the season one thing that was about frozen yogurt. Sure, sure. And now I think Selena doesn't necessarily have real power, but she is usually the most powerful person in the room. Like, mm-hmm. she is just kind of the captain of her own mini-universe, and that's allowed her to become worse and to become more overtly abusive to everyone around her. But I think it's really changed the underlying dynamic of the series. And I do think— what's thrown me off the most about the last season is everything we've been told until now is basically Selena Meyer has never, except for, I guess, her senatorial career, gotten, like, democratically elected power in her own right. She's only ever, like, fallen ass backwards into the vice presidency and then the presidency, and then she lost her real campaign. And now she's in this primary, and I guess part of it is the whole foreign interference thing. Yeah, Yeah, but it's, it's like all of a sudden she is sort of popular, and there's just no understanding of how she interacts with the American electorate in a way that can make me make sense of her as a national political figure, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the best way to probably, like, sum up is, like, everything is now done for the bit on the show. So, like, even a character as extreme as Jonah has now, like, pushed through the final frontier of, of any kind of grounding and is, like, absolutely the funniest thing like I've seen in years is just like watching Jonah this year and yet like it's it is weirdly divorced almost from like early season Jonah if that makes any sense yeah or something will happen like the revelation that Lloyd played by John Carroll Lynch is his real dad and then like he and his wife after the revelation that they're actually half siblings just kind of continue on yes. like nothing is happening is that a Game of Thrones joke <laughs> No, it's just that the show, no, everything I, I on HBO is it, the same show. I know. And, you know, like uh, Amy becoming Kellyanne Conway, yeah, basically. Yeah, slash Sarah yeah. Huckabee Sanders. Yeah. But just, like, in the space of an episode. I also just, as comedy, I find the punchlines a little more predictable, which is one of the things that I can definitively say I like a little less about the sure, current version. That's, that's fair. Like, they have this recurring comic device with Selena where she'll just say something and then immediately contradict it. Like, that bit that was in the trailer where she's like, you know, I'm very persuasive. And then Kent and Ben they're are like, like no. no. Yeah. And then she's like, you're wrong. And they're like, yes. And it's like, that's funny in the moment. Yeah. But I can, like, as soon as she said that, I knew where the scene was going. Whereas I think the Yanucci aspect of it was a little more like, I just have no idea what's about to come out of anyone's mouth. Because it, it could be a totally normal, grounded emotional response. Or it could be... Dan saying something disgusting about a girl he had sex with in college. <laughs> like, anything can happen. That. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's still, but then now it's like the uh, <laughs> the heights of Dan's evil are something I also appreciate. The, the Dan, the OBGYN, and Amy. The OBGYN triangle. who did Amy's abortion <laughs> is inspired. I do, I do enjoy it. It's just really interesting to see, like, 
almost gradually how much the show has transformed. Yes. Yeah. I think that even like the Jonah's wife becoming an opioid addict in like 12 minutes is sort and of like- And to rehab. Yes. Like we literally learn that she is taking these pills and then he's like, my hot wife has gone to rehab like six <laughs> minutes later. Yeah. You're like, okay. But see, I'm, I'm, I feel bad, but I'm laughing. <laughs> I mean, I laugh. It's just- it's always interesting to see in television, like, how much of an impact a showrunner leaving is going to have. Yeah. We've obviously talked about this with yeah. Killing Eve. And I think with Veep, there was that, like, transition zone. I think season five was pretty in line with what Veep used to be. And then once she leaves the presidency in season six, and it's in the post-presidency zone, and they're in, like, truly unprecedented territory plot-wise, I think that's where it started to, like, really recalibrate. Can we just do, like, a couple quick minutes on Thrones? Sure. <laughs> The reason why I ask is because you and I traded places over the last two weeks. Yeah, it was so quite the twist. After a long night, I was like, that ruled. And then over the course of the week was like, I accept people's military strategy critiques, apparently, and like all these other things and why why maybe there were some problems with the episode. Of yeah, the, not along- military strategy. I would, I would frame them as more, you know, series-long thematic yes, defining questions. But there were a lot of people out there being like, move the trench five feet back. You know? Yeah, I just don't think that would have been as abrasive to people sure. if the character work had felt consistent with what the show had previously So been. I enjoyed Long Night and you were like, not so much. And then this last episode, this is always the most fascinating thing. So just... So people know, like, basically, like, I watched the episode in something of, a, of like, a vacuum. So, like, so I, did I. Yeah, I watch it. Then we go do the show for an hour afterwards. And then I look at my phone. And it's always interesting to kind of see how it's being interpreted by people. And you were like, that's my favorite episode in years, this last episode, The Last of the Starks. And it was then, that, that kind of got raked over the coals for a while. Totally. And it was really... It is, like, less to the extent that you guys are because you're literally in a studio making something. But I did do the thing where my focus group was just, like, the four or five other writers and editors mm-hmm. I was talking with when we were refining our angles. And all of us immediately, like, Andrew Grudadaro and Riley and I were all like, that That's was right. way better than The Long Night. Name them and shame them. Yep. <laughs> Please at them as well as me. I need to spread the impact. But, yeah, it was—we were all— in pretty solid agreement that this was re- a good episode in the sort of later Thrones landscape. Um, and then I wrote my thing and then everyone, you know, <laughs> vocally disagreed. Yeah, yeah. But I do think part of it was I wrote my piece about Tyrion and that's a character I really care about mm-hmm. and has been really mishandled, I think, over the last couple of years. And this was like his most important and best episode in a really long time. Part of it was, I think you could also sense, at least on my end, that... People have complained that Benioff and Weiss don't really care about the fantasy elements, and they do care about the Mm -hmm. political power elements. And I would rather have them spend time on something that they want to spend time on. That's really good advice. Yes, (laughs) which is what I perceived this episode to be, where it's like, okay, if you're going to get the White Walkers out of the way, then we should at least see what you were getting them out of the way for. Uh So that was interesting to me. But I do think I'm actually—this is another piece I'm writing for the site that's going to go up, I think, tomorrow, but— it has been fascinating to watch, like, the critical apparatus around Thrones has mm-hmm. just no consensus about— I mean, the last two episodes, I think, are the most extreme example, but really the whole season. Something yeah. like Arya choosing to have sex with Gendry. I was one of the people who was like, oh, this is a really great, interesting, idiosyncratic moment for this character who hasn't gotten to be fully human in a long time. But then I know other critics who were like, this was really mishandled because we haven't had any time to see her grow and be an adult. I've gone back and forth on Jamie and Brienne. I've gone back and forth on Arya and Gendry. I've gone back and forth on 
uh, that whether conversation or not between Sansen and the Hound yeah. I thought was really interesting. That I think is a little more of an example of people just are not in a place to give Thrones the benefit of the doubt sure. when it comes to how sure. they handle sexual assault. But, especially with that character, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's been a fascinating experience this year. I mean, I, obviously, I don't think that we will—it'll be a long time before we find a show that's under this kind of critical scrutiny. And it's interesting to show the limits of what a TV show can kind of withstand, I think, yeah. in some ways. Although I do think that they are making some unforced errors, for sure. Uh, I do—it's it's just interesting. I was talking with somebody about, like, I wonder what would happen if you went back to th- season three or four and you were, like, watching it with this level of— intense scrutiny but the entire thing is just like in, at three and four you were you were like this show is going to go on for like five to ten more years so I'm well, not worried about that. Well in three and that. four it, that was when it was backed up by the books so people sure. sort of A knew it was coming and B had like had time to sort through what that thing was. I mean the answer I landed on in terms of why no one can seem to agree over what makes good or bad thrones anymore is we used to have a pretty solid rubric for mm-hmm. what thrones was both just literally in terms of the books but also you know, the books were all about subverting fantasy as something dictated by, you know, heroic tropes and happy endings and making sure, like, the consequences grew out of what came— or actions grew were consequences of what came before them. And you can only make the critique that Thrones isn't like that anymore so many times until you realize that's just, like, not really what Benioff and Weiss seem to be yeah. aiming for. Yeah. Which, you know, I, no, I, can, you mean. I yeah. can take my issue with as an overall creative decision, but then you're like, okay, what is the show they're making? What are they trying to do? What is the thing that we're going to focus on? And I think for some people, like, you know, you and Andy talked about this in The Long Night. It's just the absolutely incredible feat of production that it takes to do. I do think that part of it is, like, they wanted to make several blockbuster movies. Yeah. And and whether you call that training for Star Wars or whatever it is, but it does seem like when you watch those after the episodes, they're just like, we fucking made a big— production here, man. Like, we really did it. Look, we built Winterfell, you know? like Yeah, and that is really, you know, awe-inspiring, and I think some people are kind of like, okay, I can deal with the plot shortcomings if I can, you know, see this really unprecedented level of TV scope. Mm -hmm. And for some people, like my read on it, which is why I enjoyed the last episode so much, is I'm really in it for, like, these small character moments, and you don't really have space for that when there are, like, millions of screaming whites outside, so the battle wasn't amazing for that. You were talking about how the dialogue is just, like, grunt, horse-neighing, whatever. (laughs) Go! (laughs) Exactly, and, like, if you can give me an episode that has multiple scenes of Tyrion and Varys in a room, like, debating what makes a good ruler, Mm -hmm. like, that is what I go to this show for now, or just, like, seeing these actors cook and, like, giving them the stillness in the room to just bounce off one another. Like, I actually liked the bronze scene. I do think it should have been longer, but... It just, I think in retrospect, I just feel like it felt a little tonally off for the rest of the episode. Oh, yeah. No, I can definitely see that. It was just more, like, he enters the room, and I was immediately like, it makes no sense that he's here. Yeah. Just travel time-wise, Winterfell security-wise, whatever. But I am just so glad to see, you know, Jerome Flynn and... uh, Peter Dinklage and Nikolai Kosterwaldo yeah. bouncing Together. off one another. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that I'm not necessarily that concerned with the logistics of it. And but, you know, for some people, that's not what they're looking for either. And or they want that to be undergirded by like plot logic or what have you. Sure. And it's just really interesting to see everyone kind of like sift through thrones for the glimpses of what it used to be that they can seize onto, or just trying to grapple with the new status quo and see you know, what the final mission is before we actually get to see it in the finale. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how 
these next two play out uh, for obvious reasons, but I think that we're going to get one of each. You know what I mean? Like, I think we'll, I think five will be like three. Yes, five. And, we have been told is going to be a really big battle and episode. Six, and six, I think, will be this really interesting coda, and it will, it, it'll honestly, you know, I. It'll define the legacy of the show in some ways. I don't think it will affect people's enjoyment of the show. I'm sure it will be something that people continue to rewatch over and over again in the binge mode style. But the level of satisfaction people take out of that last episode will definitely determine how they feel about the series itself. Yeah, I think the show, it's very interesting to watch the story have to go from this is all Ray, all politique. It's not prescriptive. It's just like what would happen Mm -hmm. towards like one of the things you have to do when you deliver the ending to a big geopolitical struggle is they're going to have to, you know, provide some vision of what they think a good ruler is, what they think a good, you know, Westerosi regime is. And you can see certain people start to chafe at that when they have the, you know, Varys and Tyrion concluding that John is going to be a better ruler and people being like, wait, do we really have evidence of that? Mm-hmm. Is is Danny really so bad? Is Westeros really, like, this misogynist? Like, we right. just don't know. Right. And it'll be interesting to see if, like, the show is setting Tyrion and Varys up as show me the more, f- polls, more fools. You know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Electability. It's it's really a <laughs> pressing question. Yeah. Okay, Allison. Thank you so much. Uh, so Veep wraps up Sunday. Allison's piece on that will be up on Monday. It will. Game of Thrones. We have the penultimate episode on Sunday. Allison's piece about the critical discourse around the show will be up tomorrow. I think so. Fingers crossed. And yeah, we'll have you on soon to talk about. Uh, I'm sure all these shows. Well, Fleabag's coming out next week. (laughs) That's right. Gird your loins, people. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Allison, thanks so much. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Airbnb. Airbnb offers more than just homes. Airbnb experiences are one-of-a-kind activities hosted by locals that offer you the opportunity to get to know a city like the locals. These aren't your typical tours and activities. Instead, Airbnb experiences offer a deeper sense of connection with small group sizes that allow you to meet curious, open-minded people and a wide array of choices. Make pasta in a medieval Italian village. Visit to a private animal sanctuary. Learn how to surf with a two-time world champion or discover unheard music in Cuba. Airbnb experiences are hosted by locals who have deep expertise in their field and active members of their community. So why not take advantage of their unique perspectives and learn things you can't find online or in textbooks? You don't need a home's reservation to try Airbnb experiences. In fact, you don't even need to be traveling because of the experiences available in over a thousand cities around the world. Chances are you can experience your own city from a new perspective. Check out airbnb.com experiences to explore one-of-a-kind activities created for the curious. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Just Crack an Egg. Are you wanting to put the heat back into your relationship with breakfast? A hot breakfast can often seem like too much work, but not when you head over to the egg aisle and pick up Just Crack an Egg. Just Crack an Egg is a hot, fluffy breakfast scramble that'll have you falling in love with hot breakfast all over again. Simply crack a fresh egg over their hearty breakfast fixins, then stir microwave and reignite your love of breakfast in less than two minutes. Something else you'll love about Just Crack an Egg? It has no artificial flavors, dyes, or preservatives. Plus, it comes in seven different varieties, including veggie, Denver, Southwest style, protein-packed, and all-American. Don't wait for the weekend to add a little hot, hearty breakfast love to your AM. It's time to run with your arms open wide to the egg aisle and take breakfast back. Just crack an egg. David Cross, man, thank you so much for uh, for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is kind of a thrill for me. I uh, think I got 
I mean, obviously, was like familiar with wor- your work, but like hearing your voice is a weird like sense memory because I remember I used to work at um, Mondo Kim's in the oh, early two thousands, and we listened with the one to- in the East Village, yeah, on, yeah. on St. Mark's, and we used to listen to "Shut Up, You Fucking Baby." Over and over and over again to oh, kill man. time during shifts. I I, I, I was there a lot. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> sure, you I, probably were there when we were listening yeah, to it. Yeah, could have been, yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's cool. That's cool to hear. Yeah. Yeah, that story was great. And so few of those kind of things left anymore. I know. You know? I don't even know what that is anymore. It was like, I think it was like a massage parlor or like some like day spa no, for a uh, while. Isn't it a noodle place? Is it? I think it's a noodle place, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a it's been a bunch of things. As a lot of those, like half of St. Mark's, is you know left over from the seventies and eighties, yeah. and then half of it is constantly changing. It's like trash vaudeville is almost like a UNESCO historical site. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> uh, well, it should be. Yeah. I, I got stuff that I wore in high school from trash and. Did you really? Yeah, like this chartreuse <laughs> jacket that I put pins on. A pork pie hat. It was very kind of like. New wavy, punky yeah. kind of thing. And, uh, oh, and I had a shirt that, again, this is like 1981, yeah. 1980. So it was all like, you know, new wave style. And it was a uh, black, it was like sh- kind of short shirt. I don't know, the material was, was like a little silky ish. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, it was black, but then on either side, in kind of right down the center of thick, like a big one, a kind of orange, crushed orange velvet type huh. of stripe down, <laughs> thick stripe. You, that's been lost to the dust. I have no history. idea where it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, come on, comes out this week. I I, I loved it. Um, oh, thank you. And it was it was very cool. There's this brief moment in the beginning of it. So Lance Banks directed this one. Yeah. Yep. And um, it, he catches you. It's like probably like a 10 second shot or something. But you're kind of going through these sort of like it's almost like a pregame ritual. It seems like you're going through like these gestures of like in your head. Maybe you're doing. Material. Oh, I don't know what what. It, uh, you're just kind of like kind of like punching your hand a little. We got like some like a little Beto hand going like <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> is and, that what it's called? Now? I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, it is on this spot. But it was. I was wondering <laughs> if you hand. do have like a pregame ritual that you are aware of. I'm. I'm gonna guess that what that was uh, because of the beginning where you hear the audio. Yeah, and it's cut to black. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna guess that that was me listening to the music because uh, the intro music is also the the outro music in the uh, special because mm-hmm. it, it all it comes around on itself yeah. so so the when I leave dur- during the encore okay that's it thank you <laughs> we start the music starts but that the outro music is also the intro music so it becomes the intro yeah and that was I had will Arnett do this thing. He he was the intro voice that comes on over What a Time to Be Alive by Superchunk. Yeah. So that was, I'm guessing, this is a long-winded way to say it, but I, that was me sort of Oh, you were just beat, getting, in, getting uh, into the Getting drums. ready to be introduced. Okay. And that, that song would always pump me up and I'd, you know, and I'd play it loud. Like we had loud house music and, and it's one of my favorite parts of touring is I make... All the house music oh, that yeah. people are coming into that's playing f- as people are being seated and getting drinks and all that stuff. That's all me putting together, like, you know, compilation stuff. And then that gets played, pushed really hard, and lights go down. And so that's that's me getting, I'm guessing, me getting, you know. Hyped up for it. Hyped up and, and getting ready to go on. Is yeah. it 
is the preparation different when you know you're going to be filmed versus you're you're still kind of like just doing an, any other night kind no, of date? No, yeah, it's not really different. Um, it's pretty much the same thing, you know. The flow of the of the show, which I think you've you've in other interviews talked about, like you're kind of you have like these buckets, for lack of a better term, that you kind of like have where it's maybe it's a they're like these tight jokes. There's anecdotes, mm-hmm. and then there's maybe more like politically charged, you know, in uh, observation. Do you write to those things or do you find that that's just like a good balance for like a, an hour long set? I've found probably going back three or four tours or sets, whatever, that the recipe that works for me that I feel comfortable with, that I that I want, that I desire is, you know, roughly a third is jokes that have no, you know, political... Mm-hmm. A, a bias to them. You can just, whatever you think, whatever you love, whatever you believe, you can enjoy that joke because it has nothing to do with anything. It's just a joke. Right. So roughly a third of that. Mitch McConnell's just like, great joke. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, he loves it. Yeah. He loves my early stuff. Um, and, he used to come to Kim's all the time. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Straight to the Japanime. Um, uh, and then roughly a third is political, religious, and then roughly a third is anecdotal kind of personal stuff. So I just feel like that's a good mix. I guess that's what I would want. Like I've always said, I find zero interest in, you know, an evening of gay comedy or Jewish comedy or feminist comedy or black comedy or whatever, you know, fill it in. That just seems terrible to me. And uh, and I would rather, I just want to keep it sort of, well-rounded, mm-hmm. I guess. And and I and I also don't like to jump into, you know, hard stuff. I like to ease into it. And part of that is I want I want to know, even if I walk people, and I know in my heart, like I gave you an hour or 45 minutes of good stuff that you were happy with until I mentioned the Trump stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I know I gave you that. So if you walk out of here like, fuck this, man, you know, I had no, I didn't know he was going to talk about whatever. I know that I gave you 45 minutes, you know, of stuff that has nothing to do with anything. Walkouts still happen? Um, Well, too, I mean, this is a different set. Yeah. This special is, um, I mean, because of, you know, a big chunk of the subject matter about being a dad, it flavors it in a way. And it's it's kind of cool because it's the only set I've done that feels like it has a it feels more fully realized mm-hmm. than uh, other sets where I'm happy with that material. But those were bits, and they are all you know you sequence them, you put them together. That, that's your show. But this one has a kind of a vague feeling of a thread through it, mm-hmm. and and that's new. It has like a coherence, like a narrative coherence almost. Yeah, too. yeah. Do you think that that's a product of it coming? So not quickly, but so soon after the last one, like, do you think that you're just like in a, you were in a groove, or that you were able to like iterate uh, off of it? So, no, I'll tell you what it, I'll tell you what I think it was. Um, I, again, obviously, having a kid and that informing so much of the other material, or or at least that material that would have been there regardless whether I had a kid or not, now has a different feeling because you're contextualizing it as this is the world and bringing a child into yeah but i think it's more of a product and i'm guessing here uh i haven't really thought about this but i think it's more of a product of how i put this set together 
how it came to be, which I've never done before, which is starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. So the, all the other tours, there was like a five, five and a half year period in between them because I was working. I was doing, you know, TV shows and, and I just had no time. But I would, I'm always doing stand-up. Right. So you have, you know, days off and stuff and you're doing, you know, friend shows and hopping on shows, doing benefits, things like that. So I would have literally five years of material and I would just sort of cobble it together and take a guess and I'd, I'd try to structure it and I'd do – you know, I'd go to UCB and do an hour there and try to figure out what the set is because I had too much material and how do you sequence it? And and this time, because it came so quickly after the last one, um, with the exception of one or two bits that I I hadn't ever aired, but I'd done like in as encore pieces or stuff. I mean, I was starting from scratch. Yeah. And so I think you're, because I was building an entire set, that's how that came to be, I think. As opposed to, you know, oh, well, I remember this bit. This is good. This will fit nicely with this one. You know, it's, it's... It's like almost like an album versus a playlist or something like that. Like the playlist yeah. being like you have you have all this like scraps of stuff and you're just fitting there's it a, together. There's, yeah. there's a definite flow to this. Yeah. And I was, you know, I, I was writing this stuff as I, I was just putting it together as I was writing it as opposed to vice versa. And did you do a lot of the writing in England? Because I know that you, you, were, you were sort of like in that limbo where you had made Blit, the first series of Bliss, right? Yeah, I was uh, doing sets a bunch when I could. Uh-huh. Uh, but man, yeah, I was working my ass off on that thing because was, there wasn't a whole lot of free time. But I, Bliss had aired. I came out to L.A. to do Arrested. Mm-hmm. So we... You know, finished Bliss, sent it in, uh, turned it in, whatever it it aired, and it was also for Sky, which is a big, huge sure. thing, and and they're akin to doing like a, a network here where they are ratings. So many of the things I've done haven't ratings don't matter as much, sure. you know, and ratings matter to them, and and uh, so we had to wait till it aired to find out to get an idea of whether they were going to pick it up. But even before that, my gut was telling me. I'm not so sure about this. And so I was out in L.A. to do Arrested, and we were uh, contractually assigned to uh, and paid to write a Bible for a Series 2 for Bliss and then write the first two episodes. Okay, great. Now we'll do that, occupy our time. But we still were going to have to wait. Yeah. Like half a year. My gut was telling me they weren't going to pick it up, and I – I just decided, you know, I'm not going to sit around and wait with nothing, you know, yeah. if they if they do decide they're not going to pick it up six months from now, now what do I do? I'm going to be starting over. So why don't I just start doing sets and start putting together a new hour and a half? And if they do pick it up, then I've got all that material in my back pocket mm-hmm. ready to go. And if not, then fuck it. Boom. Push the button. June 1st, we're going out on the road. Sure. So that kind of coincided with moving back to New York and not having that time in my kid. It's one of the greatest pleasures I've had was putting the set together because I literally would get on my bike or walk to one of three venues not far from my apartment in Brooklyn. And from January, we went out in June, but literally from like the second week of January until June, I was doing on average, three sets a week. Mm-hmm. And I'd go up there with notes and record it. And that was at night. My kid would be, go to sleep. I'd leave. Yeah. And I, I realize, and I'm very appreciative of the fact that I got to spend 
so much time with my kid in her first two years yeah. like, that 95% of American fathers don't get to do. And sure. I was with her a lot. And, was, and it was a great experience and also kind of informed the is comedy. Good material there. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was uh, – um, I was starting from scratch, which I'd never done before. And uh, I feel like uh, I've been rambling for like 10 minutes. No, no, I don't even okay. know what your original question was, and I apologize. Um, I mean, I was curious did to— Did even have anything to do with comedy? <laughs> you definitely did. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the differences in the political material between 16 and now. Between mm-hmm. ma- making— uh, Sure. Yeah, because I think that uh, everybody— Regardless, actually, of your political affiliation, but for a lot of people probably listening to this podcast, like they've gone through various stages of grief, acceptance, denial, mm-hmm. rage, whatever. But also, as a comedian who's who's looking at this as in terms of material, I'm curious about how your relationship has changed from your subject. Uh, you're very like forthcoming about like he's kind of there are no bits for him. Like, well, it, I think I he think, is the bit. You know I, I mean? think like, that's the that's the key. To it, first of all, it's what I'm interested in, and I'm not really interested in things, jokes, observations about Trump the person. They've all been made, mm-hmm. and you know all the late show, late night comics, you know, late show, whatever, uh, and the people with strip shows are are doing that well. They're mm-hmm. they're making jokes about today the thing he that he this. said yeah. today, and and there's nothing more to be said about the person. And what I find infinitely more interesting and have more longevity to it is about his fans, about the people that like him. And right. that's kind of what I did in the in Making America Great uh, special. It's, it's, it's a little less about Trump. This one's much kind of less about him and more about this, this the zeitgeist, where yeah. the time we're in and the, and the people. And there's a bit that I dropped fairly early on because I'm always writing on stage and coming up with new stuff. So, you know, the show's... By the time I tape the special, you know, it's 25% different than when I started. And then the CD that'll and come the out. the CD is Birmingham and the special is Asheville. Is Asheville, right? yeah. Okay. Um, or the special was filmed in early August. The CD was taped in early November. Oh, okay. So, and there's, you know, that's different than the special uh, just because I keep writing and dropping certain things. But there's a bit I dropped that I really like. It just felt like it was too much, and I, as I said, I don't want to do too much political stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to keep it. I have a sense of when it's feeling a little like okay, let's let's move on. And but one of the bits I have was that that whole idea of you know uh, uh, what's the what's the term for you know liberal tears or you know uh, owning the libs or yeah. whatever, and, and what people the sacrifices they make that they're not even aware of for the feeling of owning the libs. And I basically do this. I'm not going to do the whole bit because I'm going to use it at some point. But um, this guy who's just basically, you know, burned down his house and done all these things because he's <laughs> all these products that are sponsoring, you know, or pulled their sponsorship from, you know, Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram or whatever. And he's just this, you know, naked guy. <laughs> um, but he's owned the libs and he's really happy. Yeah. Uh, that to me is more interesting than, you know, oh, Trump's a liar and he, you know, whatever. It's not him. It's like what he's done to us kind of yeah. or what he's revealed more. Yeah. yeah, and what people are okay with. Has your uh, cultural consumption changed at all in the last couple of years? Like, do you find yourself looking for more escapist stuff? No, probably less. I, I rarely watch TV. 
in fact, one of I don't really watch that many shows, and one of my favorite shows that I have the the DVDs ready to go, um, uh, but I just haven't had the time to to dedicate to it is the last season of Better Call Saul. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I saw all, I mean, religiously sure. watched them. They were great. And I have them ready to go, but it's like, I, I have to find the time. Also, part, partly I should say that my wife hasn't seen it, so I can't watch <laughs> it. Yeah. So that determines a lot. But but I'm almost never able to, and I don't, I just don't feel like taking it all on. Yeah. I'd rather spend, you know, the the hour and a half playing Destiny or something like that. So that's more escapist for me. And, you know, reading. Was TV ever like a big, were you ever like, like during Sopranos, were you like every Sunday I'm watching? Or no, is it I mean, never really going been? way back. I, I remember the the first kind of thing was as an adult was uh, Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. and that was huge, and we all gathered to watch it. And I, I really, I, I the only kind of binge shows that I stayed with were Battlestar Galactica, Breaking Bad, and The Wire. And there've been comedies I burned through, like uh, Pen Fifteen. Yeah, I mean. Oh, that is just Hilarious. the best. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. It's on so many levels. Oh, I love that show. Yeah, for sure. I was just kind of wondering, I mean, like, I uh, I think that, you know, Andy, who's usually here, we we often talk about, like, um, things that are coming up for anniversaries, lots of times with albums or movies or something like that, and we've just done, like, a kind of massive amount of stuff this, this year already about the movies of 1999 mm-hmm. and the kind of, like, central... Uh, what was 1999? Matrix, Fight Club... Mm-hmm. Three Kings, um, mm-hmm. obviously your American Beauty one. That is the most overrated movie in in American history. American Beauty, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I was saying that from day one. Like this is so bad on so. I mean, it's almost camp. It's yeah. verging on camp, and it's uh, uh, re- it's just terrible on so many levels. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, David, man, thank you so much for joining me. Everybody can check out David Cross's new stand-up special, Oh Come On. It will be available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Xbox, and most major satellite providers, including Comcast, Cox, Charter, Dish, Time Warner, pretty much everywhere on May 10th. 